0: Okay, we are now approaching the halfway mark in the book of Acts. If I make it through Acts chapters 13 and 14 today, which is my plan. In the previous lesson, we talked about the church being started in Antioch and Barnabas going to get Paul and bring there. He goes to Tarsus to to bring Saul with him, and then they teach the people for a year in Antioch. So we're going to pick up the story there in Antioch. Let's turn to Acts chapter 13 and read the first three verses to start off. Acts chapter 13, verse 1, reading from the New King James. Now, in the church that was at Antioch, there were certain prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. As they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Spirit said, Now separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then having fasted and prayed and laid hands on them, they sent them away. So this is, to me, this during a time of fasting. This isn't a plan that they had on their own. During a time of fasting, the Holy Spirit speaks to the church leaders, to the prophets and the teachers, and tells them to set apart Barnabas and Saul for a special purpose and this is the background for Paul's first missionary journey. So the leaders fast and pray and they lay lay hands on the two men. It's a little bit to me reminiscent of what it says in Acts chapter 6 where the apostles pray and lay hands on the seven men who were chosen to wait on the tables. There's a lot of discussions in the scriptures about laying hands on people and what that means and I've got to, I'm always trying to figure out in in, uh, in Hebrews chapter 6, where it talks about the six foundational teachings things of the faith. There's uh, mm. faith, repentance, baptism, and one of them is the laying on of hands. So I've always wondered what which were laying on of hands that's referred to. So they're laying on hands in this case is to send them out on a, on a special mission. And in Acts chapter 13, let's continue in verse 4. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there, they sailed to Cyprus. And when they arrived at Salamis, they preached the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. They also had John as their assistant. I assume that's referring to John Mark, who's mentioned earlier. Now, when they had gone through the island to Paphos, they found a certain sorcerer, a false prophet, a Jew whose name was Bar-Jesus, who was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, an intelligent man, This man called for Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elymas the sorcerer, for so his name is translated, withstood them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. Then Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, O full of all deceit and all fraud, you son of the devil, You enemy of all righteousness, will you not cease perverting the straight ways of the Lord? And now indeed the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you shall be blind, not seeing the sun for a time. And immediately a dark mist fell on him, and he went around seeking someone to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had been done, being astonished at the teaching of the Lord." Uh, So first stop on the missionary journey is the island of Cyprus. And if you go from Syria, Antioch, and Syria, if you go from some Syria and you sail west, you don't have to go very far before you run into the island of Cyprus, which is off the coast of Syria and Turkey, a big island in the Eastern Mediterranean Sea. And uh, Barnabas, you may remember from Acts chapter four, It says, Joseph, or in some translations, Joseph in Acts 4.36, who was also named Barnabas by the apostles, which is translated son of encouragement, was a Levite from the country of Cyprus. So Barnabas is a Cypriot. He's from Cyprus. And so we're going back first stop on this missionary journey that the Holy Spirit sent them out on is going back to his his home country, to Cyprus, which is uh, kind of interesting. So they go to Salamis and Paphos, are cities on the island of Cyprus. And we see a pattern. We'll see it over and over again in the book of Acts. But this is, you see, where Paul goes and he first preaches to the Jews. First he goes to the synagogue, preaches to the Jews. And then depending on the reaction there, a lot of times he'll go out and preach to the Gentiles afterwards. So we'll see that. That's his first stop when he goes to preach the gospel is, is to the synagogue at a, a, a meeting on the Sabbath. And he preaches there. So he goes to Paphos. And uh, he's, he's trying to reach out to Sergius Paulus, the proconsul, who's described as an intelligent man, but he's opposed by a Jewish false prophet and sorcerer called Elimas. And it says, and it talks about when his name is translated, I have no idea, I don't know if anybody knows, <laughs> what, what language Elimas is in and what the term actually means. But he's, he's described as being a sorcerer and a false prophet. And Paul rebukes him in very strong language. Let's consider what Paul says to him. He says, O full of all deceit and all fraud, son of the devil, enemy of all on all righteousness, will you not cease perverting the straight ways of the Lord? So he really lays him out here. And, you know, my... Uh, my brother to my right here. He's from he's from Minnesota, where everyone's polite, and I'm from New Jersey, where no one's polite. Okay. And, and you know, each of us, as we're reading the scriptures, we'll 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 connect with different things. All right, let's put it that way. So, uh, so this is well, this is one of the ones that 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 I, I I like that blunt direct approach. He just lays the guy right out. All right, he just he just hits him hits him right in the face, right? And and. You know, people get people get on my case and say, you know, Chuck, Jesus was gentle. He's not like you are. He's gentle. He's kind. He's meek. You know, he's he's the pictures where he's holding the lamb in his arms, and you know, Paul is he's like he's like the the mother hand gathering the chicks around him. And I said, wait, what about all the other scriptures? You know, and I think the well, same thing with Paul. You know, so Here's some of the scriptures Amen. that that we Christians from New Jersey like. Okay. This is, <laughs> uh, So this is a good one here. Galatians 5, verses 11 and 12. Uh, Paul says, Brothers, if I still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? Uh, uh, In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. He says, I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. So the people who want to go around uh, circumcising other people he says I got a suggestion of something that they might want to do all right let's just leave it at that uh, I think of what Jesus said in John chapter 8 this is one of the greatest rebukes of all time mm. he said you are some of the Jews is you are of your father the devil and the desires of your father you want to do he was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him when he speaks a lie He speaks from his own resources. He's a liar and the father of it. So he's saying, your your father is the devil, and you're just like your father. Murderer, liar from the beginning, completely corrupt. And I think about Matthew chapter 23, his famous rebuke of the Pharisees, and some of the choice terms that Jesus uses there in rebuking them. In verse 24, he says, blind guides who strain out a gnat, and swallow a camel. A little further on, he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! You're like whitewashed tombs, which indeed appear beautiful outwardly, but inside are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. Even so, you outwardly appear righteous to men, but inside you're full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. And then... uh, Uh, maybe when he really takes the gloves off in verse 33 he says serpents brood of vipers how can you escape the condemnation of hell this is this is jesus speaking here so um, in the scriptures there are some strong memorable and even very graphic rebukes uh, and they're intended they're 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 for those who are in serious and deliberate sin. And sometimes they, even they may be blind to the sin that they're in, but they're deeply into sin. And I think they're, they're in the scriptures for a purpose. Amen. Jesus used them. Paul used them. They were used sparingly. But I think they were used when needed. I think of this as being like strong medicine. Okay, My, my, my attitude in general when, when I'm sick is I want to, have as little medical intervention as possible i'm not the first guy to jump to run to the doctors it's like i'm I'm gonna i'm gonna do what's necessary but i'm not gonna go whole hog right off the bat is i want to i want to do whatever is necessary it's the same thing with sin is that you use whatever is necessary and if something is a in your life threatening situation for somebody spiritually there are times when a rebuke is necessary, not given out of anger or personal frustration, but out of concern for the situation that the person is in and what they need to, to wake them up. I think of in the Proverbs 25, 12 in the New King James, it says, Like an earring of gold, an ornament of fine gold is a wise rebuke to an obedient ear. Amen. Uh, Psalm 141 in verse 5 from the New King James says, Let the righteous strike me, it shall be a kindness. Let him rebuke me, it shall be an excellent oil. Let my head not refuse it. So there's a place for rebukes. And Paul administers a a powerful one here. And in 2 Timothy chapter 3, when it talks about the importance of of the scriptures and that that Timothy needs to hang on to the scriptures, Paul says to Timothy, all scriptures of inspiration of God. It's profitable for doctrine which means teaching not theology okay for doctrine for reproof for correction and instruction righteous the man of god may be th- complete thoroughly equipped for every good works i believe that that one of the reasons we need to know the scriptures is that so when necessary in an extreme case it's like you've got the full medical kit if somebody is in a, in a a terrible situation, they really need to be rebuked that if you know the scriptures, you can, you can bring the heat as is necessary. So, uh, some, some, and I want to give a little perspective and balance about rebuking here. So I don't want everyone to just decide, oh, I've, you know, there's all these things I really wanted to rebuke Chuck about. And he sounds like he's just opening the door up to himself, All right. So there's a scripture I feel is, is really appropriate at this time. First Timothy chapter 5, let's turn there. First Timothy chapter 5 and verse 1. <clears throat> Do not rebuke an older man. <laughs> like say somebody who's about to turn 69, for example. <laughs> hypothetically. Just hypothetically. Do not rebuke an older man, but exhort him as a father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, and younger women as sisters with all purity. Okay, now, I I, I wish I could stop there, but I can't. I've got to go on and and see what it says, what he says, Paul says later to him, because this is also the word of God. And let's look down in verse 17. He says, "'Let the elders who rule well be counted "'worthy of double honor, "'especially those who labor in the word and doctrine. "'For the scripture says you should not muzzle ox "'while he treads out the grain, "'and the labor is worthy of his wages.'" Do not receive an accusation accusation against an elder except from two or three witnesses. And then in verse twenty, those who are sinning rebuke in the presence of all, that the rest may fear. Okay, so this is this, you know there aren't many churches that put this one into practice here, but this is this is part of the story here. You know, we, We should be treating those who are older with respect, as fathers, as more mature people, at the same time. If we have leaders in the church, you know, in this case, they're elders, who are obviously older men, it says if you have accusations from multiple people and they're involved in sin, they need to get laid out in front of the whole church, rebuke them in front of everybody, why do you do this? Not to, not just to embarrass them, so that the whole church will take a warning. It's like, hey, these guys can't get away with this. So I need to take, I need to have the fear of God and make sure I don't do it either. And so the other, all the other elders also were going to say, whoa, I don't want that to happen to me either. This is, this is a good medicine for the church. So there's a place for rebukes, and I think that I hope, I think, I think, you know, the, the, the fellowship we have here. I think people love each other. We're very nurturing, very encouraging. I think it's really the fellowship is marked by loving concern. But, but I hope that we're not afraid to step up, and use the scriptures and follow the example of Jesus and Paul in the rare cases where it's necessary for the good of other people. So I think we should rebuke sparingly. But, but this is this is part of the gospel message, and Paul didn't shrink back from doing it when it was needed. Amen. Uh, the other thing I notice here in verse 9, it says, Then Saul, who also is called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him. So up until this time in the book of Acts, he's always referred to as Saul of Tarsus. And after this, he's starting to be referred to as Paul. Now, why did he change? Why was his name changed? To, or why did he have two names? And, and I don't know. It doesn't say. Good. A lot of people, their names were changed by God for some reason. <coughs> You know Abraham, I think of him, or I think of Hosea, whose name was changed to Joshua. Uh, uh, but but in this case here, or the the sons of thunder, you're given a nickname. In this case here, he goes from Saul to Paul, and it doesn't say why. And I I, I, I saw one one place where it says he might have named himself after Sergius Paulus, who was you know prominent convert here. I, I don't so there's no evidence of that at all, but it's just it's ironic that the same name shows up. And he's called Paul after that, or maybe he just had two names. People have there are plenty of people who have two, two names, in different different cultures, different languages, they're called by different names. So, uh, so, so anyway, this is this is the first time that he is referred to as Paul, as perhaps is his Roman name or his weak name. I'm not sure. Uh, and, and one of the things I notice here, there are many miracles in the book of Acts, but. A lot of them, several of them we've encountered so far, are not the, I would say, the positive healing type of miracles. Some of them are the scary types of miracles. It's like, like the ten plagues type of miracles. And we see here Elamas, the sorcerer, is struck blind by Paul for what he's done. We saw that Herod in Acts chapter 12 was struck dead by an angel and eaten by worms. And then in Acts chapter 5, we saw Ananias and Sapphira who were both struck dead or lying to the Holy Spirit. So uh, this is that the the miracles of God can produce a response of fear, fear of God. And this obviously had an impact on Sergius Paulus who comes to believe and comes to faith afterwards. So let's pick it up in verse 13. Let's read verses 13, 14. and when Paul and his party set sail from Paphos, they came to Perga and Pamphylia, and John, departing from them, returned to Jerusalem. But when they departed from Perga, they came to Antioch and Pisidia and went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and sat down. So this is uh, actually, uh, it talks about Perga here. Probably, probably you're thinking, where on earth is that? Actually, Alice and I have been to Perga. <laughs> we, were, we were on a trip to southern Turkey to, to visit some Christians there who are friends of ours. And they took us on a side trip to Perga, the ancient city of Perga. It was the ruins of, of Perga, and you can, you can see them online. It's absolutely fascinating ruins. And so we're walking around in the city, down the streets, and this is where Paul was. He was, it mentions he, he went here on the trip, and he went there also on the way back. But there's some absolutely fascinating ancient ruins of the original city of Perga or, or Perga. Here, So that that was fascinating to me. Uh, I encourage you, uh, uh, right before the class started, Adam shared a Bible map from the back of his Bible. And if you have any kind of a study Bible, this is a good place to take a look at the the maps that are provided. This is Paul's first missionary journey, which is a really simple journey. So he goes from Antioch to the island of Cyprus, and then they sail north from Cyprus and land in... uh, uh, they, they go to Perga after that, which is, which is on the coast of kind of southern-central Turkey. And Pamphylia is that, that whole region there. And you have uh, Perga and Italia right there. And then he goes north inland to Antioch of Pisidia. Remember Antioch was Antioch of Syria and Antioch of Pisidia. So he goes north uh, quite a ways inland to Antioch of Pisidia. And then he goes east to several of the cities. And then he turns around and repeats and goes back to Antioch of, of Pisidia, back to uh, Perga, and then from Italia he, he sails back to, to, to uh, Antioch of Syria. So that's basically an overview, and I encourage you to get a map to look at that and, and see it, and it, it will make a whole lot more sense than I can describe it with words. Now we get to, uh, this is one of the most fascinating parts of the book of Acts to me, and I think it's neglected by a lot of people, which is Paul's sermon and Pisidian Antioch. So this, to me, is absolutely fascinating, mm-hmm. and I'll tell you why. There's a, there are a number of things. I'm interested in how was the gospel preached in the beginning. What was it? What was the gospel message? How did people preach in the beginning? And and it's really very different from how most people present it today. And how was it preached to the Jews? How was it preached to the Gentiles? So a few things as we're reading this in Acts chapter 13, Paul's sermon in Visiting in Acts, this is the most detailed presentation of the gospel mm. to open-hearted unbelievers maybe in anywhere okay, uh, in the book of Acts, so you have Acts chapter 2 and, and uh, when Peter's preaching on the day of Pentecost, you have Acts chapter 13 where Paul is preaching here, to a lesser extent Acts chapter 3 and Peter's sermon there, so question is how did they persuade, how did the apostles persuade people who didn't believe to become Christians? And uh, what were the things that they considered to be foundational to the faith, which may be different from what we do? How did they use the Old Testament prophecies and which ones did they use? And Peter and Paul, were they preaching The same message, similar messages, or totally different messages? So you can compare Acts Acts 2 and Acts 13 and and see what you think about that. Was the gospel always preached in the same way? Or maybe there were certain patterns that they followed in preaching the gospel in the beginning. And this to me is not just of historical interest, but I want to know how was the gospel effectively preached in the beginning so that I can preach it in, in the same the same way that the apostles did at the beginning, and not get blown off course by modern spiritual fads. So, um, so that, that's so I look at Acts chapter two, and I look at this Acts chapter thirteen. Acts chapter two is Peter. Acts chapter three, Acts chapter thirteen. You know, there are little, and there are other other bits and pieces we can pick up along the way with the Ethiopian eunuch. Uh, Stephen's speech to the Sanhedrin I don't think he thought he was going to convert anybody there he just went down in flames of of basically laying people out that that you're just like your forefathers they rejected uh, they rejected Joseph they rejected Moses you're just like them you just you just rejected and killed the Messiah so basically he's 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 going after the bad-hearted Sanhedrin uh, in in his his sermon this is this is a message preached to open-hearted people Uh, In Acts chapter 13, let's start reading in verse 14. This is a longer passage here. So when they departed from Perga, they uh, they came to Antioch and Pisidia and went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and sat down. And after reading of the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent to them, saying, Men and brethren, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say on. Then Paul stood up and, motioning with his hand, said, Men of Israel, and you who fear God, listen. So this is to Jews and God-fearing Gentiles who were in the synagogue, who were interested in God. Verse 17. The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and exalted the people when they dwelt as strangers in the land of Egypt, and with an uplifted arm he brought them out of it. Now for a time of about 40 years, he put up with their ways in the wilderness. And when he had destroyed seven nations in the land of Canaan, he distributed their land to them by allotment. After that, he gave them judges for about 400 years, fifty years until Samuel the prophet. And afterward, they asked for a king. So God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up for them David as king, to whom he also gave testimony and said, I found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do all in my will. From this man's seed, according to the promise, God raised up for Israel a savior, Jesus. After John had first preached, before his coming, the baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, Who do you think I am? I am not he, but behold, there comes one after me, the sandals of whose feet I'm not worthy to loose. Men and brethren, sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God, to you the word of this salvation has been sent. For those who dwell in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not know him, nor even the voices of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, have, filled them, have fulfilled them in condemning him. And though they found no cause for death in him, they asked Pilate that he should be put to death. Now when they had fulfilled all that was written concerning him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. He was seen for many days by those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem. are witnesses to the people and we declare to you glad tidings that promise which was made to the fathers for god has fulfilled this for us their children and that he raised up jesus as it is also written in the second psalm you are my son today i've begotten you and that he raised him up from the dead no more to return to corruption he has spoken thus i will give you the sure mercies of david therefore he also says in another psalm You will not allow your Holy One to see corruption. For David, after he served his own generation by the will of God, fell asleep and was buried with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up saw no corruption. Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through this man is preached to you the forgiveness of sins. And by him, everyone who believes is justified from all the things which you could not be justified by the law of Moses." Beware, therefore, lest what has been spoken in the prophets come upon you. Behold, you despisers, marvel and perish. For I work a work in your days, a work which you will by no means believe, though one were to declare it to you. So when the Jews went out of the synagogue, the Gentiles begged that these words might be preached to them the next Sabbath. Now when the congregation had broken up, many of the Jews and devout proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas, who is speaking to them? Persuaded them to continue in the grace of God. So this is false sermon, and I'll give you this is the this is the Chuck Pike breakdown of, of Paul's sermon. This is, my, this is kind of how I how I break it down into pieces. So part one is he's ta- he talks about from the time of Egypt up to King David. So he goes through Egypt, the wilderness you know, very, very quick overview of what happens in Joshua and Judges and then Saul becoming king and then David. So the first thing is taking them from Egypt up to King David. That's verses 17 to 22. And then he's the promise given to David. And he says in uh, Acts chapter 13, 22, uh, in verse 23, he says, "From this man's seed, referring to David, according to the promise, God raised up for Israel a Savior, Jesus." Now, notice, he doesn't quote the promise; he just assumes they all know what he's talking about. Okay, this is, again, according to the promise, he raised, he's, he's raised up the seed of David. So this is, we saw this before when we're going through Acts chapter two. This is clearly a reference to the the promise that was given through Nathan the prophet in 2 Samuel chapter 7 also it's repeated in 1 First Chronicles 17 and then it's confirmed in Psalm Psalm 89 and 132 or in the Septuagint the numbers was one less but this is the the promise the famous promise that out of David's seed mm-hmm. one would be raised up who would be the ruler over the kingdom he would build the temple that would never be destroyed. He'd be the ruler over the kingdom that would last forever, and he'd be referred to as the Son of God. So this is the great promise, and he just says the promise. The the promise was given to David, and he doesn't have to tell him what the promise was. This is the same promise that the angel Gabriel in Luke chapter 1 Repeated to Mary that that her son was the one who'd be known as the Son of God. He's the one who's going to fulfill the promise. Who's going to reign over the eternal kingdom? So this is the promise which the Jews that Paul is speaking to all understands. He doesn't have to even quote it to them. All right. Then he then he so then the third thing he talks about is John the Baptist. John the Baptist, the forerunner of Jesus the one who comes to prepare the way for the Lord, he's announcing one greater is coming. So this was the indication that it was about to happen. And then then the fourth point is he's talking about Jesus. So he's gotten up to Jesus, going through the history of the Jews, that first of all, he said he he was suffered and killed under Pontius Pilate, fulfilling all that was written concerning him. Verses 27, 28. Then he says he was raised from the dead, and then he backs that up with two things: as seen by eyewitnesses and in fulfillment of the prophecies. And then he quotes from Psalm 2 and Psalm 16 here. Okay, which is reminiscent of Peter's, to me, is reminiscent of Peter's message in Acts chapter 2. Peter quotes a long section from there, and Paul just quotes a short section, but it's the same. This is the prop the, the, this is the psalm that talks about. You will not leave my uh, you will not you will not leave me in Hades and you will not let my side body see corruption. So this is the, the promise that Peter quotes in Acts chapter 2. And Paul gives two reasons for believing that this psalm of David, Psalm 16 or designated 15 in the in the, the Septuagint, could not have applied to David himself, because David says you will not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you let my body see decay. David is the author of that psalm. And Paul, like Peter, has to explain, no, that couldn't have applied to David himself. This had to apply to the son of David, the Messiah. And he says, first of all, he says, Acts 13, 36, he says, David's body saw corruption. So this obviously could not have applied to David. Had to apply to his son. And then he makes another point, similar to what Peter said in Acts chapter 2. And then the other point that he makes here, which I find kind of interesting, he says, he quotes, right before he quotes from Psalm 16, he quotes a line from Isaiah 55 says, I will give you the sure mercies of David. Or I think it's the, I think it's the, uh, I will give you the true and faithful things of David, something like that. Uh, is, is, uh, Literally what it says. So his, his quote, what he says right here is following uh, very closely what it mm-hmm. says in the, in the Septuagint for, for Isaiah 55, that he will give the holy and faithful things of David would be given to someone else. So the idea is that the promises made to David would pass on to another person. And this is referred to, this is the Messiah. So that's why he's saying the promises made to David. Well, David was promised... You, your, your, your soul will not rest in Hades, your body will not see the cave. That promise was given to David and it passes on to somebody else in fulfillment of what it says in Isaiah 3.5. So some major takeaways to me in, in processing this sermon of Paul, there's a lot in here. This is, I think, the most detailed presentation of the gospel to unbelievers, certainly by Paul that we have in the scriptures. So if you want to say, what was the gospel that Paul preached? This is the first place to look. This is the message Paul preached. We have it in detail. And it's also completely consistent with what Paul said to the Corinthian church later on. So he he says, think about what Paul said to the Corinthian church about the gospel that he had preached to them. He said in 1 Corinthians 15, starting in verse one, you can follow along there. Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you have received, in which you you stand, by which you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried and rose again the third day according to the scriptures. That means in fulfillment of the prophecies. And he was seen by Cephas, then by the twelve. He was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remained to the present, but some have fallen asleep. So it says, in fulfillment of the He was suffered in fulfillment of the prophecies. He was buried. He was resurrected in fulfillment of the prophecies and seen by eyewitnesses. He makes all these same points here and when he's preaching in Pisidian Antioch. So Paul has not changed the message. He's preaching the same. He says, this is what I preached to you in Corinth. And the Corinthian church, 1 Corinthians 12, 2. He says, you know you were Gentiles. Carried away by those dumb idols. So that's He's preaching the same message to a Gentile church in 1 Corinthians. He had done that as he was to the Jews in Pisidian Antioch. And in the synagogue there. Amen. So that message didn't change. And... The other thing I noticed is this this message is very similar to what Peter preached in Acts chapter 2. They're both quoting, they're both referring to this promise of David, the kingdom promise. And they assume that their audience knows, their Jewish audience knows exactly what they're referring to. They don't have to quote it in great detail. And they're also both quoting from Psalm 16 about, the prophecy about the resurrection and applying it to the Messiah, not to David himself. Another thing I noticed is that I remember years ago where I was taught, here's how you study the Bible with people. Here's how you, you bring people to the faith is you, you teach them that not only are you guilty for the sins that you committed personally, but you're also personally responsible for killing Jesus because he died on the cross for you. And after all, in Acts chapter 2, it says, God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. So it there, he said, he, Peter's preaching that to the whole group of Jews in Jerusalem and said, God has made this Jesus whom you crucified. Acts chapter 13, now keep in mind, he's preaching here to Jews in Pisidian Antioch, so they're <laughs> far away from Jerusalem. He's preaching to Jews and God-fearing Gentiles in a synagogue and he doesn't say you killed jesus he's saying the jews in jerusalem killed jesus they killed jesus that's basically they handed him over to pilate they killed jesus that's the message that he's preaching and he's preaching to to a jewish audience there too So this is completely consistent with what peter said in acts chapter 10 preaching to the household cornelius is that that where you can't take what 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 Peter said in Acts two, completely out of context. He's addressing Jews in Jerusalem, saying, "You just killed the Messiah." Uh, but uh, that doesn't—that didn't apply to to everybody from all time. We're you know we we're guilty of our sin, and we should be grateful that Jesus gave up His life for our behalf to rescue us from from sin and from death, and to to take our place. Um, The other thing that's valuable here is here Paul quotes directly from Psalm 2. So I think Peter alluded to it, but here Paul is quoting directly. So all as we've been going along through the book of Acts, I've been collecting an assortment of scriptures that the apostles used and the early Christians used in presenting the gospel. How did they teach the gospel, what are the scriptures? And I'm kind of trying to reverse engineer in Luke 24 when Jesus opened the minds of the apostles and explained how all the things in the Old Testament were fulfilled. Well, how do you, how do you, how do you, since we weren't there we don't have that sermon, how do you put it back together? Well, you go through the book of Acts and see what they were all preaching and then then you reassemble it that way. So here he's quoting from Psalm 2. Psalm 2 is really significant for us Because it speaks about the Christ, the anointed one, as being the Son of God. It talks about that specifically in Psalm 2. That's written a thousand years before the time of Christ. That he would be opposed by the rulers of this world who would conspire against him. And nevertheless, that he would rule them all with a rod of iron, that he would be the ruler. In the end, despite the opposition that he received and, and that the admonition that you better get yourself right with the son. Many times over the years, you know, from those of us from a an ICOC background, we were taught a study an evangelistic study series, and it's like, well, first you study this, then you study this, and each each study had maybe six or eight verses in it, and there were certain points that you make, and it wasn't it wasn't bad, it wasn't a bad study series, but I've always wondered what did the how did the apostles do it and people have asked me over the years chuck are we going to have a study series that we use and we you know we've never quite done that but i was saying if we wanted to do something like that why not go back and 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 come up with something that's much more along the lines of what peter and paul did which is actually kind of similar to each other but i think as we're going through the book of acts Maybe you can open up our minds to how we can be presented in the gospel. And, you know, the, the basic points that we see here are kingdom of God. This is the, the, the great promise about the king who'd rule over the kingdom would last forever. It's kingdom of God. It's the, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus that that he suffered and died in fulfillment of the prophecies, that he was raised in fulfillment of the prophecies and is seen by eyewitnesses. I mean, those are all common elements that I see in Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 13. The most detailed detailed sermons that are preached to people are open to the Gospel. So uh, something for us to all think about as we're we're, uh, 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 sharpening our abilities to reach out to the lost and persuade them is how it was done in the beginning. Acts chapter 13 and verse 42 turns the Gentiles after that. Uh, Let's pick up verse 44. On the next Sabbath, almost the whole city came together to hear the word of God. But when the Jews saw the multitude, they were filled with envy and contradicting and blaspheming, they opposed the things spoken by Paul. Then Paul and Barnabas grew bold and said, it was necessary the word of God should be spoken to you first. But since you reject it, and judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life. Behold, we turn to the Gentiles, for so the Lord has commanded us. I have set you as a light to the Gentiles, that you should be for salvation to the ends of the earth. That's a quote from Isaiah 49. Now, when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the uh, the word of the Lord. And as many as have been appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was being spread throughout the whole, all the region. But the Jews stirred up devout and prominent women and chief men of the city, raised up a persecution against Paul and Barnabas, and expelled them from the region. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and came to Iconium, and the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. So, uh So many of the Jews and and God-fearing Gentiles follow Paul and Barnabas after he preached on the first Sabbath, and then the next Sabbath, it seems like the whole city gets together. So I guess the Gentiles are going out and reaching out to all their friends, massive Gentile crowd shows up, and the Jews get really uh, upset, they get bent out of shape about all the Gentiles are interested in this message, and... Uh, Paul encourages the Gentiles the Jews are upset, the Gentiles are happy and Paul encourages the Gentiles saying you know, the fact that you're all turning to this message was foretold by one of our prophets one of the Jewish prophets said that you'd be a light light to the Gentiles that the, the gospel message would go out to the Gentiles and actually there's a lot in Isaiah that talks about that not just this one verse so they were encouraged and uh and, and the gospel spreads out from there. Acts chapter 14, in verse 1, 3 verses 1 to 7. Now it happened in Iconium that they went together to the synagogue of the Jews, and so spoke that a great multitude of both Jews and Greeks believed. And the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brethren. Therefore, they stayed there a long time, speaking boldly in the Lord who was bearing witness in the word of grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the multitude of the city was divided, part sided with the Jews and part with the apostles. When a violent attempt was made by both the Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to abuse and stone them, they became aware of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lyconia. And to the surrounding region, and they were preaching the gospel there. So this is wild stories. They, they go from one city to the next, and they they divide the whole city apart. It's extremely controversial, and they face intense persecution. Uh, and and it says that they are uh, they were abused and stoned. And then, and then fled that area and go on to to uh, Lystra after that. Verse verse 8. And in Lystra, a certain man without strength in his feet was sitting, a cripple from his mother's womb who'd never walked. This man heard Paul speaking. Paul, observing him intently and seeing he had faith to be healed, said in a loud voice, Stand up straight on your feet. And he leaped and walked. Now when the people saw what Paul had done... They raised their voices, saying in the Lyconian language, The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. And Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. And when the priest of Zeus, whose temple was in front of their city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates, intending to sacrifice with the multitudes. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard this, they tore their clothes, and ran in among the multitude, crying out, saying, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men with the same nature as you, and preached to you you should turn from these useless things to the living God, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all things that are in them, who in bygone generations allowed the nations to walk in their own ways. Nevertheless, he did not leave himself without witness, and that he did good, Uh, gave us rain from heaven and fruitful seasons, filling our heart with food and gladness. And with these sayings, they could scarcely restrain the multitude from sacrificing to them. Then Jews from Antioch and Iconium came there and having persuaded the multitudes, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. However, when the disciples gathered around him, he rose up and went into the city. And the next day he departed with Barnabas to Derbe. This is a wild story. so he's a, he's a, He heals a crippled man in Lystra, which is it's kind of reminiscent of what Peter, the miracle Peter did in Acts chapter 3, of hearing, healing the, the, uh, the, the lame man in the temple area. But the problem, check it. That the people thought he was like a god. That's right. They thought they were gods. So I remember from going to Perga and being in parts of the ancient European world. It was thoroughly pagan, and they worshipped all kinds of gods. And there are you know little statues and temples and 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 grottos for worshiping all these different uh, gods. And and so. Paul uses this an opportunity to say, don't worship us. We're just human beings like you are. They saw him perform a miracle, and they assume he's a god. He says, no, we're not. And you need to stop following worthless idols and worship the god who made heaven and earth and everything that's in it. So they preach the gospel that there is only one god and all these other things are empty. And then their enemies from the places where they had been previously show up, And just like Paul was going from from, city to city persecuting the Christians, now he's hunted down by people who are going from city to city after him. And so his enemies catch up with him from Antioch of Pisidia and uh, Iconium, and they turn the crowd against him, and he is stoned and assumed to be dead, but he rises up, goes back to the city, and then departs the next day. And... Let's pick it up, verse 21. And when they had preached the gospel in that city and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, exhorting them to continue in the faith, and saying, We must through many tribulations enter the kingdom of God. So when they had appointed elders in every church and prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord in whom they believed. And after they had passed through Pisidia, they came to Pamphylia, Now, when they had preached the word in Perga, they went down to Italia. From there, they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work they had completed. Now, when they had come and gathered the church together, they reported all that God had done with them and that He had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. So they stayed there a long time with the disciples. They make the the, the end of the journey, they end up back in Antioch. So, a few things I just wanted to point out. Uh, one is uh, let's let's put to put it mildly, this is not the prosperity gospel. Paul Paul goes and gets stoned, gets up the, off the ground, goes the next city, gets stoned there. All right, he's he's uh, this is he's having a tough life. And when he, when he goes back to the cities he'd been before, the message he says to the disciples, and I love this line here. He says it's it's in verse 22. We must, through many tribulations, enter the kingdom of God. Amen. This is a message of perseverance. It's going to be tough. Okay, it's going to be tough. We're going to face many tribulations to enter the kingdom of God. This is a, an encouraging, but a very sobering message that he's giving the people who had, who had come to the faith. Hang in there. Amen. You've got to persevere. It's going to, be, it's going to be challenging. Persevere through the trials. And then the other thing I noticed, and think about this, this is, kind of, this is kind of wild to me in light of some conversations I've had recently. Verse 23. So when they appointed elders in every church and prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord in whom they believed. So, so wait a minute. These are new churches. right? These are brand new churches. They had just planted the gospel, preached the gospel, and now they're going back, telling everybody to hang in there, and it says they're appointing elders in every city. So I thought, wow, that's not kind of how I imagine. I know churches have been around for 10, 20, and more years that don't have elders in them. And here, he, he's just on his, on his return trip. Maybe this is a matter of a few months later, and they're appointing elders in all the churches. Um, so, so what's with that? Uh, let's turn to Titus chapter 1. Verse 5. So Paul's writing to Titus, and he says, For this reason I left you in Crete, that you should set in order the things that are lacking, and appoint elders in every city as I commanded you. If a man is blameless, the husband of one wife, having faithful children, not accused of dissipation or insubordination... For a bishop must be blameless as a steward of God, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not giving to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but hospitable, a lover of what's good, sober-minded, just, holy, self-controlled, holding fast the faith of the word as he's been taught, that he may be able by sound doctrine to both exhort and convict those who contradict. So uh, it's interesting. He says, I find it interesting here. He says, Titus, this is why I left you in Crete. On the, on the island of Crete, that you should set in order the things that are lacking. Okay. Now, if Paul came to our church, would he say there's something lacking here? There's something that needs to be set in order here. I don't know. But uh, David Sanabria has been on my case recently Asking the question, why doesn't our group have elders? And they, you know, they, when I was a younger man, people would ask, you know, Chuck, do you want to be an elder? And I'd say, I don't meet the first qualification. I'm, I'm not old enough, and I, I, I can no longer say that. Okay, maybe there's, maybe there's some other qualifications you think that that would knock me out as being considered to, to be an elder. But that that one, that one, I've, I definitely meet that qualification. You have to be old. That's the first thing you know, right? <laughs> <laughs> They called elders for that reason. Uh, but this, is, this was the normal way the churches were run. And early on, they're going back and they're appointing elders in, for all the places that they've been. Now, it says in Timothy, the elder's not supposed to be a recent convert. So what do you do with that? Well, I, I don't know. They may, have, they may have just said, well, these are, these are Jews who... Had been in the faith, they were in the kingdom of God, and now they they brought the rest of. I'm not sure quite how they did it, but this is what's going on in the church, and I think this is something that we need to wrestle with as a group. Is 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 you know what do we do with this and take a look at what do the scriptures say about the church and about elders and how we're organized? Well, the other thing is we've been small enough, in, in the past we had an influx, of, we had an influx of people. Uh, over the last few months here, more coming in all the time. Uh, but but uh, as we're getting larger, that maybe the informal way that we've been doing things, uh, maybe we need to be set in order. So I'll, I'll just throw that out there for you to think about. But this certainly seems like this is the normal way the churches were run, is that they had elders who were, who were, who were people who met this qualification. And I remember praying years ago, uh, God, help me to have the character of an elder. But I added to that, but I don't necessarily want to ever be an elder. Okay, <laughs> so I, said, I don't want to be, I just want to be at the character of an elder, but I don't necessarily ever want to be one. That wasn't, that wasn't my, my uh, desire. And I had, to, I'm reminded of a a, a, a good friend of mine who would talk about, he said, in the churches of Christ, he said, to to meet the qualifications of an elder that someone practically had to walk on water. Okay, that's that's really what you needed to do to be an elder. He said, on the other hand, to be to be an evangelist in the church of Christ, you could go to the nearest bar at closing time and find somebody to, to meet the qualifications. So hopefully that that's that's hopefully David will have the good sense to edit that comment, that wisecrack out. But, uh, but the, the thing is the elder, one of the tough things about an elder is there are some tough qualifications that are in there. And so, what sometimes, what sometimes, easy to do is say, well, we'll just set up, we'll set up, uh, we'll call it something. We'll call the person who's doing the eldering something, some other name that doesn't have any qualifications attached to it. But, but the desire is, as I told you, I'm not looking particularly to be an elder. I just want to. I think we should, we should have a church where we're striving to follow, and just be a normal, a normal Christian church. And so, uh, t- uh, to be continued on that one. Amen.